Marijuana smoking, experts point out, can make a helpless addict of its victim within weeks, causing physical and moral ruin and death. The first legally sold marijuana here goes to an Iraqi war veteran. A new insurance study out this week looked at car crashes in several states that allow the use of recreational marijuana. Barry Peterson. You're a doc. You've studied this. You've talked to the researchers. You're right. saying marijuana can kill cancer cells. Who taught you how to do this stuff? You, all right? I learned it by watching you. Marijuana is illegal under federal law. States have legalized recreation. It's no wonder you can't open your eyes. What do you expect doping yourself up with this wrong stuff? What do you know about pot? Good morning. You are listening to the Cannabis Hour, a bi-weekly radio program where we discuss all things cannabis. I'm your host, Jen Prakachi, and I've got a great show coming up for you today. I want to acknowledge that today is indeed Thanksgiving, so happy Thanksgiving. And while I love the food and the friends and the family and the fun times before COVID, (laughs) I certainly don't love the history. So today we're going to take this time to learn about the intersection of legal cannabis and one of our tribal communities as we listen to the story of our local Hopland band of Pomo Indians attempt to enter the legal cultivation space. After that, we'll be hearing from Karina Gold of the Sogora Tay Land Trust. The Sogora Tay Land Trust is an urban land trust founded in 2012 with the goals of returning traditionally Chochenyo and Karkin lands in the San Francisco Bay Area to indigenous stewardship and cultivating more active and reciprocal relationships with the land. So before we get started with these important voices, I'm going to do something that I recently learned about, and that's an indigenous land acknowledgement. You might be wondering, like I was, what is an indigenous land acknowledgement? Land acknowledgements are something I just heard about um, for the first time, and it was through another group I am a part of, which is the Arts Council of Mendocino County. A lot of cannabis, as we know, is cultivated um, by non-Indigenous people in this area, myself among them, and land acknowledgements are a really cool way to just honor the land that we're all on, and I think if that found its way into the cannabis community... That could be a really good way for non-Indigenous cultivators to support our Indigenous communities. So I'm going to read you a little information about that. This is from the website nativegov.org. Why is Indigenous land acknowledgement important? It is important to understand the longstanding history that has brought you to reside on the land and to seek to understand your place within that history. Land acknowledgements do not exist in a past tense or historical context. Colonialism is a current ongoing process, and we need to build our mindfulness of our present participation. So Mary Lyons from the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe goes on to say, when we talk about land, land is part of who we are. It's a mixture of our blood, our past, our current, and our future. 
We carry our ancestors in us and they're around us, as you all do. So we have some tips here for creating an Indigenous land acknowledgement statement. Start with self-reflection. Before starting work on your land acknowledgement statement, reflect on the process. Why am I doing this land acknowledgement? If you're hoping to inspire others to take action to support Indigenous communities, you're on the right track. If you're delivering a land acknowledgement out of guilt or because, quote, everyone else is doing it, more self-reflection is needed. What is my end goal? What do you hope listeners will do after hearing the acknowledgement? When will I have the largest impact? Think about your timing and your audience. Do your homework. Put in the time necessary to research the following topics. The indigenous people to whom the land belongs. The history of the land and any related treaties. Names of living indigenous people from these communities. Indigenous place names and languages. Correct pronunciation for the names of the tribes, places, and individuals that you are including. Use appropriate language. Don't sugarcoat the past. Use terms like genocide, ethnic cleansing, stolen land, and forced removal to reflect actions taken by colonizers. Use past, present, and future tenses. Indigenous people are still here and they're thriving. Don't treat them as a relic of the past. Land acknowledgements shouldn't be grim. They should function as living celebrations of indigenous communities. Ask yourself, how am I leaving indigenous people a more empowered place because of this land acknowledgement? Focus on the positivity of who indigenous people are today. Take action. Land acknowledgement alone is not enough. It's merely a starting point. Ask yourself, how do I plan to take action to support indigenous communities? Some examples of ways to take action include supporting indigenous organizations by donating your time and or money, support indigenous led grassroots change movements and campaigns, commit to returning land. At the end of the day, remember, Starting somewhere is better than not trying at all. We need to share in indigenous people's discomfort. They've been uncomfortable for a long time. Dr. Kate Bean says, we have to try. Starting out with good intentions and a good heart is what matters most. So with that, I'd like to bring you some information about um, the Round Valley Indian tribes. They are um, the tribes of the area that I cultivate in. Um, I cultivate in the foothills of Round Valley. And due to COVID, that's actually where I'm live broadcasting from today. So this information is from rvit.org. That's the Round Valley Indian tribes website. The Round Valley Indian Tribe is a federally recognized tribe. Beginning as the Cobolo Indian Community, RBIT is a confederation of small tribes. The Yuki, Wailaki, Conco, Little Lake Pomo, Nomalaki, and Pitt River. They were forced onto the land formerly occupied by the Yuki tribe. 
The Round Valley Indian Reservation began in 1856 as the Nome Colt Farm, an administrative extension of the Nome Lackey Reservation located on the northwestern edge of the Sacramento Valley at Pascenta. One of the five reservations in California legislated by the United States government in 1852. The system of Indian reservations had a dual purpose to protect Indians, quote unquote, by segregating them from the settlers converging on California in greater and greater numbers and to free Indian land for the settlers to use. When the reservation was established, the Yuki people, as they came to be called, of Round Valley, were forced into a difficult and unusual situation. Their traditional homeland was not completely taken over by settlers as in other parts of California. Instead, a small part of it was reserved especially for their use, as well as the use of many other Indians, many of whom were enemies of the Yuki. The Yuki had to share their home with strangers who spoke other languages, lived with other beliefs, and who used the land and its products differently. Except the Yuki, Indians came to Round Valley as they did by, uh, to other reservations by force. The word drive, widely used at the time, is descriptive of the practice of, quote, rounding up Indians and, quote, driving them like cattle to the reservation where they were, quote, corralled by high picket fences. Such drives took place in all weather and seasons and the elderly and sick often did not survive. The Gnome Cult Walk is an annual reenactment of one of these drives. From years of intermarriage, a common lifestyle, and a shared land base, a unified community has emerged. In 1936, the descendants of Yuki, Wailaki, Konkau, Little Lake Pomo, Gnome Lackey, and Pitt River peoples formed a new tribe on the reservation through the adoption of a constitution and created the Cobolo Indian community, later to be called the Round Valley Indian tribes. Our heritage is a rich combination of different cultures with a common reservation experience and history. All right, well, that is my land acknowledgement for the Round Valley area, which is where I'm broadcasting from today. And without further ado, we are going to be listening to Growing on the Res, Native American Entrepreneurship and the Green Rush. This piece is from our website, Macan, and explores the efforts of the Hopland Band of Pomo Indians to enter the legal cannabis cultivation space. Macan is where the global community gathers to celebrate creative culture. We're driven by the unexpected connections that span fashion, art, design, tech, music, food, and more. Macan digs deep into the people, process, and products that influence and shape our dynamic world. All right, so Rich, if you wouldn't mind just queuing that up and getting it going, here is uh, Growing on the Res, Native American Entrepreneurship and the Green Rush, and I will be back after this piece. Natives have a lot of good ideas, a lot of great ideas. It's just natives don't have access to capital to make those ideas pop. And even if they could, you guys know how pretty much every market is set up. I mean, you have people who control it, 
and then they decide who they want to let in, and that's usually by influencers. Like if you create something hot, you get the influencers to push your product or your whatever you're doing. A lot of natives don't have access to those influencers or the capital or you know any of that. So it's it's kind of hard to take it from A to C when B is like invisible, basically to all natives. Joe San Diego is the chairman of the Hopland Band of Pomo Indians. His tribe is based in Mendocino County, California. We sat in on a dinner at the Las Vegas branch of Italian American eatery Carbone, while he and some others discussed the tangled up world of cannabis and Native Americans in the United States, especially California. Among Joe's guests were the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo Indians chair, Michael Hunter, but who usually goes by Hunter. Both were in town as part of RES, or the Reservation Economic Summit. This was put on by the National Center for American Indian Economic Development. Our liaison through it all was Will, who's part of Sherbinsky, a renowned California cannabis company. They gained cred for award-winning strains of cannabis and products with dessert-inspired names such as Sunset Sherbert, Pink Panties, Gelato, and Mochi. The mastermind is a guy named Mr. Sherbinsky, or Sherb, as those around him say, a member of the famed Cookie Family Collective of Growers, who's created the original Girl Scout Cookie strain, a variety that's widely referenced in today's mainstream rap and hip-hop. Together with Joe, they've struck a deal to grow on land owned by Joe's tribe. Over dinner, they explained how the elaborate and legal operation works to both us and Hunter, who wanted to know more about the emerging industry many tribes are getting into. Before we start though, we want to preface that there's going to be a few F-bombs in this story, so consider your surroundings. As we said earlier, this story takes place on the Indian Reservation of Hopland. Here, Tribal Chairman Joe was looking to develop some land owned by his tribe, the Hopland Band of Pomo Indians. The partner, Cannabis Flower Band Sherbinsky, represented by Will. So what makes this deal so lucrative? Why would a cannabis grower want to go out of their way to start growing on an Indian reservation of all places? The short answer is that doing so offers a bandage that stems from the reservation's historical status. Indian reservations in the United States or Canada were pieces of land allotted to different tribes throughout the colonial history of both countries. In the United States at least, there are 326 recognized Indian reservations. Now, the exact formative history of each of them varies, with some being established after signing treaties to surrender land, but some of the reservations were formed as the result of the Indian Removal Act signed by President Andrew Jackson in 1830. This meant forcing natives off of ancestral lands in the southern and eastern United States that were favored by settlers in exchange for designated plots further west. In his annual message to Congress, President Jackson wrote the following about natives. They have neither the intelligence, the industry, the moral habits, nor the desire of improvement, which are essential to any favorable change in their condition. Established in the midst of another and a superior race, and without appreciating the causes of their inferiority or seeking to control them, they must necessarily yield to the force of circumstances and disappear. 
It would be a long time before the government would significantly update its views on native rights to self-determination. In 1970, President Nixon outlined policy changes that supported Indian self-determination, but the spirit of Jackson's message hasn't gone quietly either. Today, the U.S. federal government officially recognizes tribal nations as domestic-dependent sovereign nations. Not all of these tribes have reservations, a large designated plot of land to call home, but for all intents and purposes, federally recognized tribes and the United States interact on a government-to-government principle. This separation means that yes, tribes have both the right and authority to regulate activities on their lands. This includes enacting or enforcing laws and regulations that are, and this will be important later, stricter or more lenient than those in their surrounding states. This means that aside from their own governments, tribal nations have their own courts and law enforcement on reservation lands, among other things. And because of their status, certain federal, state, and property taxes don't apply on Indian lands. Although individuals still pay the same taxes as their fellow U.S. citizens. Now, hearing just that part alone makes reservations sound like the ideal place to make bank, while the legal side of an emerging industry is still catching up. Some sort of financial or legal haven inside the United States. This should make all tribes and their members extremely wealthy. But hold on, it's not that simple. Historically and even today. Indian reservations in North America have not fared well, with economic and living conditions lagging far behind the standards of their respective countries. The U.S. Census found that in 2014, 28.3 percent of American Indians and Alaskan Natives were in poverty, the highest of any race group, and much higher than the 2015 national rate of 14.7 percent. In addition to poverty. Unemployment, addiction, and suicide are some of the social issues affecting Native peoples, and the case is typically worse on reservations. There are many reasons for these statistics, but for the sake of brevity, we'll talk about the main economic factor: distance. Reservations have been, as per the treaties that created them, established in areas that are remote or unfavorable, and deliberately so. This means they're generally located far from major cities, meaning they lack the traffic needed to sustain certain markets. And with tiny populations, the spending power just isn't there to make leaps and bounds. So, just how have many tribes supported themselves? Well, it depends. Some reservations have natural resources that can be tapped, and some have good land for agriculture. Now, these would be good because the products or raw materials can flow outwards towards the markets and the buyers. For other tribes, such as hunters, they can benefit from a single gas station on a nearby highway. But if a tribe like Joe's didn't have, say, oil and gas, huge patches of soil for mass farming, or even a nearby highway, how could they get people to leave the cities and spend money on the res? Those other income streams aside. When most non-natives think about the most financially successful native-run operations, they're probably thinking about casinos and resorts. These are certainly a draw for tourists and people who just like to gamble. But for tribes, 
it can be the equivalent of putting all your eggs in one basket. Having worked extensively in the casino business, like his tribe's own Hoplin Shokawa Casino, Joe understands this all too well. Yeah, I mean, it's like any other business. The market gets so saturated, you kind of have to distinguish yourself to capture the market you want. Joe recalls how for the first five years of relying on gaming, there was only one other casino apart from theirs. Over time, River Rock opened 30 miles south, closer to San Francisco. Then finally, around a few years ago, Graydon Casino opened up further that way, less than an hour closer. This all but soaked up the rest of what could have been business for his tribe's casino. It's kind of like the price is right, you know what I mean? It's like whoever gets closest to the population, they end up getting the bulk of the lion's share of the profit. There's only so many people, you know what I mean? So my approach was to do something younger, different than everything everybody else was doing. I just didn't have the support to do it. Joe's experience working in gaming and his own years on tribal council make for a very broad perspective of business viability on tribal lands. But he doesn't see it being the be-all and end-all for reservation economies. Like many other tribes, his is trying to move away from strictly gaming. And not just because of the aforementioned risk. Joe marks a definite generational shift for natives in terms of business direction. I think gaming overall, like in the United States, is just kind of like heading in a different direction. You know what I mean? It's just, uh, in our market that we have, it's... It's like super based for like a lot of older people, you know what I mean? And a lot of the stuff I do is kind of aimed towards like a younger crowd. We did a lot of like MMA fights, live MMA, live concerts and stuff, yeah, so. Semi-regular events aside, there's just no ignoring the potential of cannabis, especially when the conditions couldn't be any riper, something Joe and many other native leaders are keenly aware of. Historically, California has been one of the most cannabis-tolerant states, having first decriminalized marijuana in 1975. This reduced possession of an ounce of cannabis to just a misdemeanor. In 1996, with the Compassionate Use Act, California became the first state to legalize marijuana for medicinal use when recommended by a doctor. With that said, Cannabis legislation in California is continuing to evolve, and the doors have opened towards the legislation and taxation for recreational use. California Proposition 64, or commonly the Adult Use of Marijuana Act, was just approved on November 8, 2016. That made it legal for individuals to use and grow marijuana for personal recreational use, with the business and taxation aspects to follow next year on January 1st, 2018. But even before this highly anticipated legal green light, the pieces have been coming together for a few years as Joe recognized the untapped resources sitting right in his backyard. Before I was on council, they weren't really using the land for anything, you know what I mean? And, and um, me and a couple of my cousins were cruising around their edge, just checking different areas out and being like, you know, we could use this for this, use that for that. And so when I met Will, and we started talking about, you know, moving into this space. I mean, I already had the area picked out. I knew the perfect area, the perfect location, just because the way it's set up, there's one road in, one road out. We even had a study done, like, the access to sunlight, the sun, you know, the sun belt, how it moves across the res. And, like, if you look at, like, where we are, I mean, it's, it's direct sunlight all day and all night, you know what I mean, along that whole strip. With his initial survey complete, 
Joe recognized the value of the land, specifically for cannabis, and more importantly, a new path for his tribe's economic future. While Hunter's land includes proximity to the freeway for a lucrative gas station, Hoplin needed a different approach. As Sherbinsky continues to develop its brand as a flower company, for cannabis flower that is, it's embarking on a bold movement to be just as much a lifestyle brand. And as an early partner in Sherbinsky, Joe would be building the foundation for a long-term solution. I think for us in Hoplin, our location has never been our strength, but I think in a cannabis space, our location is a strength. And the amount of property that we have, I mean, we have something around 2,000 total, and it's hidden, and it's, it's, it's nice. So, like, long-term success, you know, I see us, like I said, with Sherbinsky and them developing that brand, you know, being a part of that, um, collecting our tax revenue, getting away from the gaming. You know, I, I support gaming 100%. I, I love it. And I, I can see us being in gaming, you know, you know, until the end. But just having a different revenue stream that doesn't depend on gaming, it doesn't depend on traffic of business coming into town and traffic of people coming into town, something that we can build and grow and ship out anywhere we want. Moving away from the service industry towards production could open the doors economically. But getting away from gaming and shifting towards cannabis wasn't going to be easy. Joe definitely had the entrepreneurial drive and did his due diligence, but there were more than a couple of hurdles in the way. One thing Will had mentioned was Joe's acute awareness of the finer points of tribal law. As tribal council chair, Joe knew the intricacies of it all, but he needed somebody who knew the state laws where the surrounding market was located. This is where Will comes in. While he's not a lawyer, he does know the legal side of cannabis in California. But more importantly, he's personally passionate about cannabis and knows how to articulate and deconstruct its challenges. Legal and you know, quote unquote, you know, consultants made it made people more skeptical instead of me going hard to heart with people one on one, not a full business team, you know, and be like, oh, this is an average guy, this is you know, they're successful, they, they do other businesses, and I felt like that was much easier than me coming with my lawyers and coming with a certain consultants and liaisons and stuff like that. I think that was um, I didn't like that approach at all. With all of the potential complications surrounding state law, sorting out that legal side was hard enough. But for a California company hoping to set up shop in Indian country, it had to persuade a whole nother government. The little aspect of tribes, like things can change overnight. For us, we, we, we make contracts and we draft the ordinances and draft the contracts to make them as bulletproof as possible. But if I don't have council support, right, they can make my life incredibly hard and give us to a point where we're at a roadblock where we're not gonna want to invest any more money on infrastructure or do our projects there, you know? So that 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 is always there. That that problem is always there. If you have a, a, a tribe that's not doing financially well and you have a membership that has a lot of issues and, and they're, they're going through certain, you know, poverty issues, that's gonna be the problem because it's gonna reflect on the council and the council's gonna want to think that they're gonna be able to do things on their or whatever the case might be and they might want to run us off for projects. But um, those are things we're always we always have to worry about. Poverty is still a real issue, even as the next generation of natives is looking for ways to move forward. With poverty often comes substance abuse, and for California-based natives, alcohol and meth are the most pervasive. 
Because of that, it's understandable why tribal leaders would be reluctant to produce a controlled substance, and on the reservation no less. But Joe sees things differently. Native people a lot, I mean, what I've seen a lot in Native people, just growing up around different tribes and my different cousins and stuff, a lot of the times, you know, they, they demonize, like, any type of drugs, any types of alcohol. I think it works against tribes when they do that. Just me personally, like, you know, part of my family is, like, 100% okay with people drinking, right? And then the other part of my family is, like, oh, it's the worst thing in the world. But you look at, like, the part that demonizes it, and those guys, you know, are the ones who struggle with alcohol dependency and, you know, those kind of issues. And the ones who don't, they've learned to drink responsibly, and it's just, it's not an issue. It's kind of like a cultural thing. Like, I mean, if you look at Italy, wine is considered food over there. So you don't have, like, a lot of alcoholism over there. Whereas, like, in Native communities, I see it as an issue. You know what I mean? It's more of a problem. I think some tribal leaders just don't want cannabis around their community, which is fine. When you're trying to harness the power of something that you believe in, but that can also be inherently destructive. It's already a huge challenge when your own community doesn't support it right away. Fortunately, or unfortunately, Will was able to sway the tribal council in a way that, try as he did, Joe hadn't been able to. This is the best of things. I've been talking to my membership for the past two years, right? And I don't want to say that I'm better spoken than Will or... You know what I mean? Well, whatever. I mean, I think the rules are very well spoken. But I've been saying the same thing to these guys for the past two years. And I have, like, the, the same intentions as he does. And, you know, not only that, I'm a tribal member. And I'll, I'll go to my membership meetings and talk and say the same thing to you. They're like, oh, my God, Joe, how dare you? You put me bastard in here all the time. And I'm like, I'm here trying to help you guys, man. Like, and then this guy comes in, like, like, two weeks ago we have our membership meeting. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about it anymore because I know what I'm going to get. I know my answer. I know my, my reception ain't going to be, you know, what I want to get. Will, why don't you come over there and do it? Will comes up, everybody's like, just loves this guy. Yeah, I know, like, really, like, like, Tom Landers, they're coming up to the microphone and telling them, like, they're like, how yeah, much, if it wasn't for our leader. <laughs> No, they're like, you know what? They love Will. <laughs> You're like, bro. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? So, like, so like as an outsider, like, this guy gets this guy gets more love. Smart. He's smarter. Yeah. 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 I think it definitely plays to the strike that I am Asian, but so I'm also like a minority. Yeah. If I was like, you know, Caucasian, like white, I think it'd be different. I, don't, I personally think it'd be different. Given the history of racially tinged mistrust between tribes and outsiders, Will might have facilitated the partnership in a way he hadn't expected, just by being, well, Will. To recap, by this point, Joe had the support of his tribe, and with Will's help, the legal base to grow medicinal cannabis bound for California dispensaries. And as an added layer of protection, 2013's Cole Memorandum signaled a huge change in the way the federal government dealt with cannabis. It basically meant federal resources were to be less focused on prosecuting individuals that followed state laws for medicinal use. Naturally, the memorandum turned into discussion of how it applied to tribal sovereignty and cannabis legislation. The next year, in December 2014, a clarifying memo stated that the federal government's non-interference policies that applied to the 50 states would also apply to 326 recognized American Indian reservations, 
even if the number of them that were looking to legalize was actually pretty small. Still, that should have meant further legal autonomy for tribes, which meant they could write their own laws surrounding cannabis. When asked, Will explained to Hunter the benefits of growing in Indian country. But I'm talking about equipment that we buy or purchase, like whether it's nutrients, and pots, pads, lights, whatever it is, we, we, we have more taxes that for that. That's Will points out that in addition to an exemption on taxes for equipment, reservations generally have more fluidity on the zoning and permitting requirements, the bureaucratic bulk of which could bog down the approval process for years elsewhere. It's worth the progress and you start generating revenues from that. In most of these places, the council members are already fighting each other, the planning department's fighting each other. You don't know when you're going to get that permit and when you're going to get that license. And you don't know if they're going to change the ordinance or certain things. And then, the, and then the state comes in and says, okay, you know, these we're only going to issue these class of licenses depending on the given real estate that you have. And that's another permitting process. So there's multiple, multiple steps. It's understandable that the expediency of cannabis legislation and scalability on tribal lands make them more attractive to prospective farmers, while recognition of tribal sovereignty should protect the sale of goods on tribal lands, provided, of course, everyone does all the homework. Still, the biggest issue facing Joe and Will has always and will continue to be sales off of reservation land. But for a company as established as Sherbinsky, there was no room for taking risks. And so Will was proactive in informing and assuring the powers that be of the operation's intentions. How, how we've been navigating around that is that the very first day that we even had the property up there and we had the ordinance passed, I invited the Board of Decriminalization, which is the taxing authority for the state, and let them know, like, okay, this is what we're doing. We want to pay taxes. We want to, we want to get the state money as well. You know, we're, we're a California company. We're selling it to California dispensaries. This is the revenue that's going to be created from it. It's just that most tribes, they don't want to have that dialogue, you know, direct with them. And they also get a bad taste of like, they hear, they, all they do is hear stories. They don't really get to meet the people. So they hear stories of like them blowing out, you know, 20 acres, unregulated, bringing it unregulated into the California market with no type of tracking from it. These guys just want to understand what we're doing. And of course, they're gonna, they want to make a little bit of money off of it because it's coming into the California market. Us as a company, we're completely fine doing that. But I think it's very important for tribes to have some sort of dialogue with the state. But even after jumping through the layers and layers of intricate legal hoops to run a legitimate cannabis operation, there were more vindictive players in the game, as Joe and Will found. So Humboldt Growers Association, we had like a meeting in Frisco, and uh, I think Sherman went to it, right? Mm -hmm. And basically they wanted to introduce a bill that if a tribe has a casino, they can't grow any, they can't be involved in the cannabis industry. Yeah. I know, but what's crazy is like it's one of the only bills that like basically. What's crazy is that almost like, got brought to the Senate. That almost got brought to the table. It's, like, like, it's like one of the most racist bills. Like they literally yeah, identify, like, justify that. They identify like a race of people. While businesses will always try to find ways to deal with competitors in the same industry, the attempt to specifically limit the income diversity of natives is very telling. Despite clear economic gains for not only the tribes hosting a cannabis operation, but also the state where the product is going to be sold, some parties are trying to intervene through lobbying 
and some of them have been even more direct. Joe and Will recall their greatest setback yet. And we have a very, very strong case because all lawyers know, we're in the medical marijuana business, if cops come to a illegal grow that they've been staking out or they get a warrant for, they come onto that property. That property has licenses, lawyers calling you saying this is a legal grow, take a look at our paperwork. They disregard everything, don't listen to anybody, don't call tribal council, don't call tribal police, purely with mulchers, in and out 20 minutes just to cut all the crops. That's a shakedown. Because what's happened before is, and this happened in Santa Cruz at my friend's property. Santa Cruz sheriffs came onto their property and the lawyers went out there and were like, hey, if you cut all these plants down, this is the total amount that you guys are going to be liable for. I suggest you guys need to do whatever research to see that if this is legal or, or, or illegal. If you guys think this is illegal, guess what? We're right here. Come arrest everybody. But here's all our paperwork. So what the cops do, they take pictures, they take samples. They took one or two plants, you know, and they go back. You don't go and eradicate 850 plants. The most recent developments include a lawsuit officially filed by the Hopland Band of Pomo Indians and Wills Thera Fields Incorporated. It pertains to the raid on September 2, 2016, where a sheriff came onto the property and ordered the destruction of over 800 mature cannabis plants. We reached out to Mendocino County Sheriff's Office and the specific sheriff in question, but were unable to get a reply. In recent years, law enforcement has been cracking down on farms in California. Now these crackdowns have been for violating water diversion regulations, especially during the state's drought period, and amid the alleged growing drug-related violence in Mendocino, which has been infamously dubbed the Emerald Triangle. Still, Joe and Will's frustration is inevitable, given they tried so hard to play by the rules. With the original plan to produce around five to six pounds of medicinal grade cannabis per plant, Will estimated the losses at over six million USD. Are these guys supposed to be sheriffs or these guys supposed to be gangsters? You want to play gangsters with Big Bang? Let's go. You know, Big Bang. Like you guys are small town dudes. Like you're gonna hate on us. Like we're trying to do everything above overboard. We're trying to empower the community. We're trying to make money for everybody. We're investing millions of dollars structuring around legally, creating jobs, creating wealth in the area. And you're going to come with us for what? Just because you think these with tribes the, are going to make more money? Most of the, the poorest people. With the poorest people. You know? Nothing is infuriating for me. In addition to interfering so heavily with what was a legitimate operation, there were also some pretty, shall we say, inflated assumptions about their identities. They're like a quick, like, yeah, they were saying it was some like city local publication. Yeah, the sheriff or the, some of the sheriffs gave him comments. It was like, yeah. Well, the one I read it was like, oh, Chairman San Diego and his Asian mafia, or somebody put that like, comment on there. Yeah, was, yeah. I was like, yeah, those Asian mafia. That's crazy. Now, there were a few other comments that would elicit some very justified eye rolls, but let's just conclude by saying that despite the myriad setbacks, Joe and Will see the bigger picture. Their legal battle is far from over. But even when the dust settles and the rush of what's been called the Green Rush has passed, they'll be part of history in the making. It's not only a watershed moment for the evolving legal American cannabis industry, but also for other tribes too. 
While casinos certainly enjoyed its time as the poster child for reservation economies, for tribes hoping to develop an industry on their reservations, cannabis marks the beginning of a new chapter. It's one where natives have a very good shot at exerting the self-sufficiency that naysayers from President Jackson to grizzled racists born much later have always accused them of lacking. And most importantly, it's one where the next generation of entrepreneurial natives like Joe and Hunter can pick up that torch and lead both native and non-native alike. Why? Let's just say the next step for Joe and Will is to secure a gentleman's agreement with the powers that be. This is more formally known as a Memorandum of Understanding, or MOU for short. Once they get that to continue their legal grow up, others can follow suit. I think they call that sharing the wealth. The big thing is too, is like if we do get an MOU with him and we work this out, it's not just Hopland that benefits from it. It's every single tribe that wants to do, it gets in the cannabis space. All the tribes of Mendo are going to benefit from it directly because they're just going to take the MOU that they have with Hopland and they're going to, you know, cookie cutter it to every other tribe. But it doesn't matter. Whatever you get, Whatever you get I get. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing, like, with me, you know what I mean? Like, I know, like, from my tribe, you know, we're 100% all in. My only, you know, reason for bringing Hunter into it is, is just, you know, it's an opportunity for him and I'm not a hater. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like, I see it as, you know, another tribe to be killing it too. Um, and instead of keeping, you know, something like this to myself, I, I just, I, I really believe in, like, synergy, you know what I mean, between people and between, you know what I mean, the universe, between everything and so. Like, the more positive, you know, energy I can put into that, the more, you know, lives I can touch, the more people I can bless with that, the better, you know what I mean, the more it comes back to me. Hello, if you are just tuning in, this is the Cannabis Hour. I'm your host, Jen Percacci, and we are learning about the intersection of one of our local tribal communities and the legal cannabis cultivation space. We just listened to the piece Growing on the Res, Native American Entrepreneurship and the Green Rush. Text and narration by Nate Khan and audio by Epic Woe. This piece is up on the website Maycon. Maycon is where the global community gathers to celebrate creative culture. We're driven by the unexpected connections that span fashion, art, design, tech, music, food, and more. Mekan digs deep into the people, process, and products that influence and shape our dynamic world. You can listen to this piece again or learn more at www.mekan.com. That's M A E. K-A-N dot com. All right. Next up, we'll be hearing from Corina Gold of the Sogorea Te Land Trust. Sogorea Te Land Trust is an urban indigenous women-led land trust that facilitates the return of indigenous land to indigenous people. You can learn more and donate if you'd like at http dot slash slash sogorea te land trust dot o-r-g that's spelled s-o-g-o-r-e-a-t-e 
Uh, we probably won't have time for this whole piece, but we're going to listen to part of it anyway. She's got a lot of great stuff to say. And then I will be back to wrap it up after we hear from Karina. Um, uh, she is the founder of the um, uh, Sigorante uh, Land Trust um, here in the East Bay. Um, she's a um, Chochenyo and Karkin Ohlone woman, born and raised in Oakland, and an activist working on preserving and protecting the ancient burial sites of her ancestors in the Bay Area. So I'm really excited to learn about her work with the interest. Please welcome Karina. Um, good afternoon, relatives. It's good to be here. I want to thank my relatives, my uh, panel members here, for honoring me in the way that we do things and don't do things. Um, and it's important that we have this protocol. And, um, you know, each of the folks that talked today reminded me of stuff that I wanted to say, and I was like, wow, that's pretty good. I get to take this home in some kind of way, right? And talk about this, and I just really want to thank Elizabeth um, for um, for inviting me to be on this panel to talk about things here. One of the things that's happened over the last, and I guess I'll talk about the history of where we're at, because we are in the village of Yolamu, and Yolamu is the first name of this place. This place was not um, St. Francis, it was not San Francisco, it was not even California. But that this is Yolamu and this is the territory of the Ramatush people. And that these were the first people of this land. And that they had been here since time immemorial. My ancestors come from across the bay, what is now called Oakland. Um, I come from, I live now in the village of Huchin, uh, the territory of Huchin, which actually takes up five whole cities. It's not a very small place when we think about a village. I live also close by in a place called Joaquin, where my family also come from along the San Leandro Creek, Castro Valley, Hayward, Fremont area. Those places are sacred places to us. My ancestors also come from this place called Carquin. And many people that live in the Bay Area know the Carquina Straits. My ancestors come from there. My ancestors were also taken from Saclan, which is the Contra Costa area, so the Miwok people. My ancestors also came from Holchang, which is the Yokut, the Delta Yokut people. My ancestors also came from Napa, the Napian people. My ancestors are also came from across the bay and the Bay Miwok people. My ancestry actually takes up all five of the different people that came from the Bay Area and was enslaved at Mission San Jose at one time. So my history has been here forever in the Bay Area. And so it's, it's my honor to be able to always be able to speak on behalf of my ancestors, to always to wake up in my ancestral territory 
It's also my great burden to make sure that we are not completely erased. In this particular time in our life, we talk about what are we talking about here? In what area, what, in what age are we right now? If we are thinking that there are bad things that are happening out there right now because of 45, there are things that are happening way before then. That the society has continued to create genocide on my ancestors that are here in the Bay Area. It has only been probably in the last 20, 20 years or so that most people have even remembered that Ohlone people still exist. Because of the histories of what happened here, the colonization, the specific colonization that happened in the Bay Area, because we were colonized first by the Spanish in the mission system, and then by Mexico, and then by America. By that time, we were almost totally obliterated. And then, when we were finally remembered, we were remembered in fourth grade history classes, and then we were erased again. So we were remembered by Ohlone Park in Berkeley, the Ohlone Veterinarian in Fremont, the Ohlone Apothecary, as a name only, but not as a living people. And so for me, this is what it talks about. What is the land saying to us? That's what this was about, right? What is the land saying to us? Every single day the land says to me, get up. Every single day the land tells me, because my ancestors are still there, that this is where you're supposed to be and this is what you're supposed to do. This is the work of my ancestors. This isn't to wake people up because we have to all live here together. We talk about taking care of the water and the seeds. And I was at this interesting talk in Marin the other day, and interestingly enough, only two people of color, me and my co-founder, Janella LaRose, were the only people of color that were talking about, that listened about the water. So that tells me that folks are not reaching out to people of color, even though we have something to do with water as well, right? We're learning about all of these things that we're supposed to do, and we only get... Mm. We're only told that it's right if a scientist said it first. Indigenous people all over the world knew that we were supposed to take water, that that was our responsibility, that we had original teachings no matter where we came from, that we sing to the waters, that we sing to the waters. I teach my grandson when he comes over, when he asks for a glass of water, to tell the water, I love you, because it's medicine as we put it in. And then we have the scientist. I think he was a Japanese man, right? I can't remember. I always forget his name. And I have to remember it. Emoto. Emoto. See, everybody knows. <laughs> because he was a scientist, right? <laughs> not because he was an Ohlone that's not really here, a figment of your imagination. But Emoto actually said, if you say nice things to water, that it changes. But if you say bad things, it looks ugly, right? It's only because science is telling us that, that it's okay. But indigenous ideas, ideas always have been that. We always knew that. Those were our original teachings. But because we had to run from slavery, run from forced relocation, run from all of these different kinds of things, we weren't even able to explain that to folks that were coming into our territories to harm the lands that we live on. Right? We knew that it was good to burn. We knew that it brought back things. We knew how to take care of our the land that we lived on because we had an intimate connection to it. 
Did you know that there was a redwood forest right across the bay? And within a hundred years or less, all of the redwoods were cut down. And then somebody was interested. He said, oh, I got some, some really good trees that will grow. Eucalyptus, right? That's why we got all these eucalyptus. And you can't do anything with it. And I'm highly allergic to them. So I don't like that they're here. But there's things that we know about our land. You know, when Matt first started talking about this guy, White, pissed me off. I'm like, man, this guy, right? He still has this whole idea of dominion over land and animals. And still calls our rocks and mountains inanimate. That's still wrong for us. So I carry a rock in my backpack wherever I go. That rock is probably thousands of years older than me. Has seen so much happen in this world. Has so much knowledge that I will never have. And I understand that because we have a connection with each other. I have friends that live up in Shasta who go and sing to their spring and talk for the salmon. Because that's the relationship that we have to the lands that we have. We have ceremony together because the salmon go from our territory back to hers and back down through here. So those are the connections. But wouldn't it be great that people in the Bay Area, not just the native folks, but everybody that is dependent on that salmon came and sang to them. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing for us to actually reimagine ourselves that that was actually our relationship. That was actually what we were supposed to do. That was an obligation to living here in the Bay Area that you had to go sing to those salmon. Right? So I work on sacred sites of the Bay Area. What in the heck does that mean? Where are the sacred sites? I wake up and you look outside. Where are the sacred sites? You said, this is Yolamu. They must have some sacred sites around here somewhere. Well, have you ever been to the Metreon and the Yerba Buena Gardens? There's a burial site there. There's a sacred site there. You don't see it anymore. Have you ever been to Oakland downtown on um, Broadway near 14th? There's a, there's a Burger King there. Anybody ever seen that Burger King? Yes. It's a burial site under there. you ever gone to Emeryville? There's a mall there on the corner of Shell Mound and Ohlone Way. One of our largest shell mounds, burial sites of our ancestors was there. Nels Nelson was this guy that worked at UC Berkeley. And he, um, over 100 years ago, knew that development in the Bay Area was going to totally destroy these monuments of my ancestors. These monuments older than the pyramids in Egypt, older than any of the first cities ever created in this world, were right here in the Bay. So this map shows where those, those places were. Over 425 of them he found ring the entire Bay Area at one time. Virtually none of them exist anymore. They have not been destroyed. By destroying our sacred monuments, our places that, that we pray at, that we buried at, that we live by, that destroys our, our past. It destroys our connection with the land. <clears throat> Alright, trying to figure out how to do this. Is that what I want to go to? So we talk about, I'm doing work right now in the West Berkeley Shell Mound. This is the West Berkeley Shell Mound. 
It's a parking lot, 2.2 acres of land on 4th and University in Berkeley. This place, I still take my kids and my grandchildren to pray. This place that we go, we don't have a mosque or a church or a synagogue. We don't have any of those things. We have this parking lot that's a parcel of what used to be a village site. The first place that people ever lived in the Bay Area. The very first place that people set up to live were my ancestors right here on the Bay. The first place that people ever laughed. The first place people ever raised their children. The very first place anybody ever pulled a fish Okay, unfortunately, we had to wrap that piece a little early. That was Karina Guild from the Sogorate Land Trust, an urban indigenous women-led land trust that facilitates the return of indigenous land to indigenous people. I hope you enjoyed that. I think she has a lot of great points in there. You can learn more and donate at sogorateelandtrust.org. 